This is Mark Lemley from Stanford Law School, and you're listening to IP Fridays. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert. We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. First of all, I want to thank you for tuning into IP Fridays. Our podcast has now been downloaded over 6,500 times and the number of listeners is growing and growing. And I want to already hint that we will have a Christmas present for you. Actually, uh, we are giving away original Christmas mugs from a German Christmas market in Cologne, my hometown. And we will have more about this in our first show in December. Also, our listener Ian Floyd left us a really nice feedback. If you want to leave us a feedback, you can go to www.ipfridays.com slash feedback or simply press on the leave voicemail button on the right of your screen when you enter our website. Hey guys, this is Ian Floyd from the Love and Sensibility Podcast. I just wanted to let you know that I really appreciate your show. You know, people out there that have a business, you're going to run into situations when you're dealing with intellectual property, you know, patents, copyrights, that type of thing, and even in podcasts. And I just want to let you guys know that I really appreciate your, your, your what you're doing out there and, um, and tell everybody else, they need to listen to this show. You need to download this show and keep this as one of your uh, shows that come up in your podcast iTunes list every week. So guys, keep up the great work. We have a link to his podcast in the show notes for you. I'm very excited to have a special guest today who has been coined the most influential academic person in the IP field. Today's interview is with Mark Lemley from Stanford University, and he will tell us more about the most recent Ellis case of the Supreme Court, and he will tell us about his company Lex Machina. Also, I will tell you about fast-track proceedings for community trademarks. But before we jump into the interview, Ken has a really interesting story about Facebook as a service of process in legal proceedings in the U.S. Suppose that you're dealing with a certain legal issue regarding divorce or child support, but cannot get in contact with the opposing party. What methods could you use to locate them? Facebook, the world's largest social media platform, is used for connecting with old friends, new friends, and family. They say that desperate times call for desperate measures, and one New York judge recently granted permission to serve legal documents via social media platform Facebook. A New York judge recently granted permission to Noel Biscocho to use Facebook to serve legal documents to his wife, Anna Maria Antigua, since there was no other way to contact her. The plaintiff had no way to trace his ex-wife since she had moved to a different address and changed her phone number. The case was heard before family court in New York before Staten Island Support Magistrate Gregory Glidman. The judge ruled, despite the absence of a physical address, Biscocho does have a means by which he can contact, namely the existence of a social media account. 
In February of this year, a U.S. magistrate for the Eastern District of Virginia, Thomas Rawls Jones Jr., also permitted service by Facebook, in addition to email at two known email addresses, as well as service via a LinkedIn account. The court in that case ruled service of process through all four means of service, two email and two social networking accounts, ostensibly belonging to the defendant, comports with due process because it is reasonably calculated under the circumstances to provide defendant notice of this suit. The case is Who's Here, Inc. versus Gokin Oren, DBA, Hoonier, and Hoonier.me. With technology evolving and becoming more intertwined in people's everyday lives, could social media become the most convenient way to effectuate service of process? If other judges accept this method of delivery, this trend may catch on around the United States and even around the world. For the record, it's already been accepted in Canada, New Zealand, and before the English High Court under certain circumstances, often coupled with other requirements such as publication in a newspaper or service via electronic mail. Thank you, Ken, for this really cool use of social media and legal proceedings. And now we jump into the interview with Mark Lemley. I'm very excited to be on the phone with Mark Lemley today. Mark Lemley is often coined the most influential person in intellectual property. And he is currently professor at the Stanford Program in Law. And he is also founding partner of a law firm called Yuri Tangri. And a couple of years ago, he also founded Lex Machina. And uh, before we want to talk about uh, his uh, Lex Machina firm, uh, I want to ask Mark Lemley a little bit about the most recent Alice decision. So first of all, Mark, thank you very much to appear on the program. Uh, well, I'm happy to be here. So um, what, in your point of view, are the most important takeaways from the Alice decision rendered by the Supreme Court for a couple of months ago? Well, I think Alice does a couple of things that are very significant. Uh, the first thing that it does is it cements as the test for patentable subject matter uh, the framework that the Supreme Court set out in Mayo two years previously. And I think uh, a lot of patent lawyers had more than half persuaded themselves that Mayo was an aberration, that it couldn't really be the right result. Um, and now it seems that it's not only uh, confirmed uh, when it comes to uh, medical diagnostic patents, but it is the rule we apply across all areas. And when you apply that rule, the court says in Alice, uh, if the claim is directed to an abstract idea and all you do to that abstract idea is you implement it in a conventional way, such as by using standard computer hardware, uh, that invention is not patentable subject matter. And I think that's quite significant because uh, a large uh, fraction of the software and business method patent claims that are being litigated in the United States today fit that description. Uh, we've taken a basic idea, a problem we want to solve, and rather than filing a patent claim that covers a particular algorithm or a particular solution to that problem, the claims are phrased in the form of you know, any computer programmed to achieve this result, programmed to, to reach this particular outcome. And in the wake of Alice, we've now seen um, in the software and business method world uh, 15 lower court decisions 
Uh, in 13 of those lower court decisions, the courts have invalidated the patents. In the other two, uh, they've said, well, procedurally, it's too early to make this decision, but come back later. Uh, so the, the record of these patents, I think, since Alice has not been very strong, that doesn't mean, I think, that all software is unpatentable, but it does mean uh, that I, my guess would be that the majority of the software and business method patent claims that are being asserted in court today are going to be held invalid. Yes, and the USPTO recently, or ex actually right after the decision, they um, issued a statement uh, or kind of rules for their examiners um, for uh, assessing uh, these kinds of patents in the field of business methods and software. And the rules seem to be very similar to the rules in Europe. And in Europe, you uh, first look at the claim and see which features are of technical nature and then use these to assess inventive step, or in the US, you would say obviousness. And the rules in the US are now quite similar. Um, what is your point of view about this. Yeah, I do think there's been a been a, a substantial move in the United States towards the towards the European approach. If anything, I think as we see Alice being applied in the courts, um, uh, the US might now be more restrictive uh, when it comes to software patentable subject matter than uh, than Europe is uh, because our Uh, the leeway we give for, for technical effects seems to be much more limited. Uh, the courts have been saying, well, if all you're using are um, uh, standard pieces of computer hardware, even if you've programmed them in a new way, uh, your invention as a whole is not going to be patentable. Right. For example, in um, Germany, there was a case where a robot for welding you know, for, for placing welding spots in the car manufacturing industry to put cars together. Uh, the robot was known, but the algorithm was changed, and it was just a piece of software that made the robot uh, weld, uh, made more precise welding spots. I think uh, if I apply the, the rules by the USPTO, that would not really be patentable because it was just a piece of software. What's your opinion? Uh, so... I I think that may be right, and and one of the things that we need to to figure out as the court decisions uh, continue are what are the logical limits of Alice. Uh, I, I think if you take seriously what Alice says, uh, we would say that was unpatentable because the robot hardware technology was well known. Uh, that said, I do think that uh, at some point um, when the courts confront Uh, inventions that really do look more like real technology that they're going to start putting limits on the on the Alice principle, uh, because if they don't, you know, if you take it to its logical extreme, um, uh, virtually nothing is going to be patentable uh, because uh, because you know you can reduce a, a wide variety of claims to uh, to the basic idea and then say, well, I took this idea and I implemented it using materials out there in the world. Right. Okay. So another aspect that, stru uh, that struck me is that um, a lot of the uh, large companies uh, in the U.S., like Google and Apple and, and the like, they have large uh, portfolios of patents, and uh, many of these patents are, you know, uh, not entirely software patents. Some are entirely software implemented. Some are just business methods. Uh, 
are these all worthless now in your opinion probably not or uh, will do you think the companies will enforce them or not will there be write-offs or not uh, what do you think uh, do you have any opinion about this well i think um, my I, i think there's going to be a much greater premium on uh, how the claims are drafted I, i i think there are a number of sort of just very broad business method patents out there or, or patents that are written without a lot of technology uh, underlying them that are, that are not going to be salvageable after Alice. But I also think that uh, there are a number of patents in which there's, there's real uh, advance in computer technology, uh, in software, in a new algorithm, and I am at least hopeful that if the Uh, if the patent claims that are being asserted are directed to those algorithms, are limited to those technical improvements, um, uh, that courts will find ways for them to survive. Uh, so I have argued in a, in a paper last year uh, that part of the problem that, that the court is trying to address is this problem of functional claiming, of trying to claim uh, the problem that you solved uh, rather than the particular way in which you solved the problem. So I think we'll see the growth of uh, of narrower, more specific uh, claims that try to incorporate more clearly the new algorithms that people have developed. We may see more use of means plus function claim language. Uh, so, you know, I think all of the companies in the software world need to take a look at their portfolio and say... Uh, not only going forward, how am I drafting these claims, but um, do, do I have patents where some of the dependent claims may be more uh, likely to survive than the independent claims? Do I have a real technological invention here that I could go back and claim in a reissue proceeding, for example? Um, and and I think if for the for the companies that are thinking of asserting patents, that becomes really important. Now, I also think that in the Silicon Valley, a lot of the large patent owners uh, are not companies who ever really plan to assert the patents, uh, that they have the patent portfolios primarily for defensive or trading purposes, uh, and they may not be uh, as concerned about this. Uh, and I suspect that the Googles of the world, even though they're large patent owners, uh, look at the Alice decision as a good thing because when they show up in court, it's primarily as a defendant in a suit filed by a, by a patent troll, uh, and those patents are much more likely to be invalidated. Right. Well, thank you very much for your insights about Alice. Um, I also promised our listeners that I will ask you about your uh, company, Lex Machina. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the company when it was founded and why did you found it? Um, and what does it do? Why, wh how does it make our life easier? <laughs> Uh, so I started this project in 2006 as an academic research project, uh, something called the Stanford IP Litigation Clearinghouse. And the basic motivation was that we were starting to see all of the debates in the United States around patent reform. And people were throwing around uh, uh, numbers in those debates. Uh, patent trolls are 50% of all lawsuits. No, patent trolls are only 2% of all lawsuits. Uh, and, and I sort of felt like, you know, 
this is all anic data, uh, as I call it, right? So it's not based on real statistical data. It's based on people's personal experiences masquerading as data, and that there has to be a kind of knowable answer to some of these questions. So we started collecting uh, information on every IP lawsuit filed in the United States since the year 2000, and we quickly realized that this was a project of enormous scope, uh, that it was, there was so much information uh, that we had to automate as much as possible of the data collection and analysis um, if we were to hope to keep up with all of the cases that were being litigated. Uh, and so um, we, ended up, we ended up spinning it out as a private company in 2010 called Lex Machina. Um, and that company provides um, both law firms and corporations with kind of access to data and information about patent litigation uh, that's helpful in, in uh, anything from pitching a client uh, uh, for a case to knowing when, you're, when you've been sued in a new jurisdiction, um, what experience the judge has with patent cases, when do they do their Markman hearings, does your opponent tend to settle cases or take them to trial, uh, and things of that nature. So I, we find that law firms use this tool to, to get intelligence about the court, about their opponent, about their opposing counsel. Um, uh, we also find that companies um, uh, are interested in uh, more analytic work. So they're interested in benchmarking themselves against their competitors. Am I being sued more often? Am I settling more or less of my cases? And also in some predictive analytics, right, of the... Uh, of the 50 cases I have pending, you know, which three are, are more likely to go to trial or which ones are the biggest risks for me. Uh, and that allows people to, uh, to make some more informed judgments. Law has been for a long time a, a discipline that's been resistant to, uh, to efficiency, to big data, um, and, uh, and to the kinds of optimization that have uh, swept through the rest of the business world. But I think we're seeing a real revolution, uh, particularly starting here in Silicon Valley, in legal technology uh, and in sort of ways to improve and uh, make more productive legal services. And Lex Machina, I think, is one of the leaders in that, uh, in that endeavor. Yeah, very interesting. So um, what kind of uh, clients do you mostly have with Lex Machina? Is this mostly law firms, big ones or small ones? Or are these the large uh, corporations? Or are these like kind of mid-sized companies? Who is mostly paying for your services? Uh, so I would say it, most of the clients are law firms. Um, a, a large number, a, a fairly large share of the big law firms in the United States are clients, but we also have uh, small firms and mid-sized firms. Um, the the sort of uh, subscription price can differ depending on the the size and the number of attorneys. Um, but most of the most of the clients are law firms, but we have a number of corporations as well, and those tend to be. Corporations that are are sort of heavily involved in some aspect of technology, um, and so have a lot of patent suits or a lot of patent uh, a lot of patents to worry about. 
the you know the the, the sort of companies who started in this area were the Silicon Valley technology and software companies. Uh, they were, I think, naturally uh, a logical market for uh, for big data and analytics. Uh, but we have uh, branched out into the pharmaceutical industries uh, and a number of other uh, uh, patent owners. We hope ultimately to uh, expand the product beyond just patent law. So we've been collecting data on copyright and trademark law as well, uh, and we may move into other areas. That's very interesting. Do you think about um, expanding to other territories and legislations, for example, also collecting information about case law in Europe, in Germany? Yes, so I think that's definitely something we are interested in doing. Um, it comes with some challenges, uh, both the language challenges, but also different jurisdictions are uh, at very different stages in whether or not their uh, case records are online uh, and available uh, in a searchable form. Uh, but our hope eventually is to reach beyond the United States into, into Europe and into places like China and Japan, where there's a great deal of interest in, in uh, patent litigation and very little rigorous information about, uh, about what happens. Yes, as you mentioned, China, most patents these days are filed in China and uh, the trend is not stopping. It's either, it's probably accelerating. So um, I think that would be probably a big market for, uh, for you to be in, right? Yes, I think that's a, it's a very important market. Uh, and I think um, you know, not just, of course, for Chinese companies, but, but companies in the West are very interested in what's happening in China with the IP system. Uh, it's very much in flux, uh, and I think it's an area in which if we could have access to the, to the data, it would, be, uh, it would be a great thing. Well, thank you very much for being so kind to uh, spending time with me on the phone. It has been a real pleasure talking to you. And um, I hope uh, we can hear from you in some time in the future with updates on uh, software patents or any other topic that might be interesting. <laughs> thank you very much for your time. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure as well. If you want to find out more about Mark Lemley, go to www.ipfridays.com slash Mark Lemley, M-A-R-K-L-E-M-L-E-Y. Recently, OHIM has announced that they will now process community trademarks a little faster if you want. They introduced a fast-track program. The fast-track program will be available starting from November 24th. Currently, CTMs are published around four to eight, eight weeks after the fees are paid. In my personal experience, Sometimes that can be much, much faster. I had cases where the trademark was published actually just a week after having paid the fees. But on average, the OHIM might be correct. So now they are promising to cut this time in half if you are selecting the goods and services from a database of pre-validated and pre-translated terms and applicants would have to pay the application fee immediately after submission of the application. 
Also, the applicant should not trigger any deficiency finding at the time of submission or during the examination by the OHIM staff. If you want to read more about this, you can go to ipfridays.com slash fasttrackohim, www.ipfridays.com slash fasttrackohim, all one word. Thank you for listening and tune in next time. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com slash feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com slash iTunes and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.